And welcome to another episode and a new season of Electrify This, a podcast focused on electrification as a pathway to decarbonize and revitalize our economy. Each episode, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrified transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Senior Director of Electrification with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, What's Really Needed to Cut U.S. Emissions Faster This Decade? We are on to season four of the pod, and I am thrilled to be back. Looking forward to the year ahead. 2024 is already shaping up to be a big year on so many fronts, and we want to continue making Electrify This one of your go-to podcasts for the latest news, information, and expertise on electrification, as well as climate progress. To that end, we want to hear from you. If you've not done so already, please take a minute to take our survey at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. We really want your feedback. Also, before we start our show today, I want to let you know about a new podcast that I'm listening to, uh, one that I'm thoroughly enjoying, and I think you should check it out. It's called With Great Power. It's a podcast from GridX. And as we discuss regularly with our guests here on this show, the transition to clean energy technologies that we need to reduce emissions and transform our economy is already well underway. And making that transition possible are human beings working to build a consumer-centric, zero-carbon, more reliable electricity grid, and an economy powered by clean technologies. With Great Power is a podcast about the people who are building the clean energy future today. And every other week, host Brad Langley talks with executives, engineers, technicians, and big thinkers who are harnessing the forces reshaping the electric grid. Tune in to With Great Power wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. And let them know I sent you. All right. So we are kicking off the new year and a new season with a big question and a big topic. What is really needed to cut U.S. emissions faster this decade to achieve a net zero future by 2050? To help us answer the question, I am pleased to welcome two esteemed guests who have been at the forefront of several efforts to support strategies and policies that will help reduce greenhouse gas emissions quickly and achieve progress on decarbonization across the U.S. economy. First, we have Ed Ryder. He's the principal of Ryder Consulting, an independent consultant supporting clients in the areas of industrial decarbonization and broader market sustainability. He's the past director of the Center for Clean Energy Innovation at the Information Technology Innovation Foundation, and he also served as the director of the industrial program for the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, and uh, spent 31 years in various leadership roles at Dow Chemical. So, Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to have you back on the show, and welcome. Definitely my pleasure, Sarah. And we also are joined today by Susan Tierney, or Sue. She's a senior advisor at the Analysis Group, and she's an expert on energy and environmental economics, regulation, and policy, particularly the electric and gas industries. She has done a lot of consulting for a myriad of groups, and she's also testified before Congress, state and federal regulatory agencies, and federal and state courts. She's also served as the Assistant Secretary for Policy at the U.S. Department of Energy, and she was the Secretary of Environmental Affairs in Massachusetts, the Commissioner at the Department of Public Utilities, and many other roles. She's worn a lot of hats in her uh, career. So, Sue, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Sarah, and it's especially a delight to be here with Ed. 
<laughs> well, that is always fun when my guests know each other and have worked with each other. And I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. Uh, you guys have been working on one particular project that we're going to really dig into. So before we do that, though, uh, Ed, you have been on the show before. You've changed roles since you were last on in season one. I believe you were some of the earlier guests that we had. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what you're up to these days. Uh, yeah, Sarah, since uh, we talked last, um, when I was director at uh, ACEEE, where I published that report on beneficial electrification, I more recently published a, a report on amplifiers. And what I was looking for in that report is ways to increase the leverage uh, across industries and across technologies and across all subsectors to accelerate uh, decarbonization. Uh, in that report, basically looked at ways that we can amplify uh, the leverage of those technologies and the, the learnings. So that's one of the things I saw also in this report that we were doing with the National Academies. And the question there is not only how can you leverage technologies, but how you can also leverage knowledge in the workforce and to accelerate the development uh, of the workforce at the same time. Great. Well, I love that term, amplifiers. It's a it's a really good one and certainly speaks to the <clears throat> additive potential of these technologies and, as you say, the, the people doing the work. Um, excited to dig in more. And as for you, Sue, you, as I mentioned, you have an extensive and impressive background. You've done a ton in your time working on energy. For the listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with you, tell us a little bit more about yourself and the role that you're currently playing in the clean energy transition. Well, thanks for that nice question. Uh, at this point in my, you know, career, and I'm pretty long in the tooth at this point, I tend to focus my attention on things related to the clean energy transition. I have grandkids, uh, I'm still working, and I want to put my experience and knowledge to good use on problem solving towards climate change and other clean energy issues. And so I, I have a day job at Analysis Group where I work on projects with clients that are really about the energy transition. And I'm involved with a number of different non-governmental organizations and some foundations and uh, the National Academies on work related to the transition as well. So I'm still having fun. It's just, no, there's no shortage of really challenging problems here and really uh, worthwhile things to be working on. You said it. That is absolutely true. I love that. I love that. And I had a chance to watch one of the FERC hearings that you were part of and testified at. So uh, great to see you still in action and doing really important work in so many spaces. Um, and I can say that for you too, Ed. I'm glad you didn't retire and, and leave us because there's so much to do in the industrial uh, space, especially. Yeah, Sue and I are both in the same uh, area there. That, you know, we've uh, had long passed our, our first role uh, and multiple roles after that. And we're still looking to have an impact for this uh, transition that's um, really, really needed to a low carbon economy. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this work you both contributed to with the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, or NASIM. Uh, I know for some of the listeners out there, this is not a group that is uh, on their radar. So before we talk about the report, uh, can one of you tell us a little bit more about what NASIM, is it NASIM or NASIM? Do they go by NASIM? 
You can choose which one you want, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Wonderful. Okay, well, I'm going to go with Nasim. (laughs) Rolls off the tongue a little better. Um, So, Sue, how about you tell us a little bit more about Nasim? Uh, I'd love to. The the academies, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and, and Medicine are the organizations that are known as NASM. And uh, the National Academy of Sciences has been around since the days of President Lincoln with it, when it was established as an organization that would uh, be responsible providing expert advice to the government about one kind of problem or another. And uh, more recently, in the last half century, the academies of engineering and medicine were set up, and together, these organizations convene experts on a particular topic and issue reports that are aimed at providing, uh, you know, well-reasoned, well-researched background on a topic and recommendations for action. Great. Um, and I, you know, for, for those who are yet unfamiliar, I'll, I'll put in the show notes a link to their website. There's tons of great resources and reports and all are, uh, for the most part, publicly available. So that's um, also another huge asset. Um, so we're going to talk about this report, and it is, uh, as I understand it, a second in a series. Um, but the final report from the Committee on Accelerating Decarbonization in the United States, Technology, Policy, and Societal Dimensions uh, was released late last year. Um, before we talk about what's in the report and the recommendations and some of the findings, uh, Ed, can you pre- provide us with just a little bit of background on the committee's work and the scope, not only of the the report series, but if there's anything from the first report that helps us better understand the second report that we'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, Sure, it's a good question. The first report really focused on ways to decarbonize the U.S. energy system um, and at the same time find ways to to boost the economy and revitalize manufacturing, uh, engage the workforce in this transition and many other elements. But we had real t- really a short timeline uh, for the first report uh, in that the advice was looking to come uh, to the administration uh, during the transition to the Biden uh, administration. The second report, having a little bit more time to dig into the topic, uh, expands uh, not only the topics to be looked at, but also looks at ways that this transition can be accomplished uh, in ways that are fair and equitable. So in contrast to many other roadmaps that are out there, this report incorporates uh, the pathway to the fair and equitable transition, and it looks at uh, health, uh, economy, and several other elements at the same time. So it really is a cross-functional report. That's great. And it's a pretty light read, really, coming in at 635 pages. <laughs> uh, yes, it, it is extensive. But I'll note on the uh, on the website, uh, there's a number of uh, highlights for particular topic areas, a number of helps, and a number of things that help folks uh, unpack all the information that's in there. Great. Well, and I'm, perhaps as we'll talk a little bit more, the report is organized in a way that, you know, there's definitely bookends of introduction and scene setting and conclusions, but there's also individual chapters on topics where people most interested in one thing or another can dig in. For sure. No, I I did um, 
admittedly did not read the entire thing front to back, but skimmed it and found it to be very accessible, um, particularly given the breadth of topics that were covered. So I'm excited to have you both help us unpack what's in there. Um, And Sue, I'm going to start with you. I'm sure for each of you, you know, there's way too much to really touch on in depth in the time that we have. So curious if you could uh, provide us with you know, the one to three takeaways that really stood out to you from your perspectives and the uh, experience that you brought to the table. Thanks. Uh, Let me start by saying that the report really has a theme that addressing climate change is truly essential and possible. And uh, there are actually a host of benefits that can accrue to the American people, the economy, and so forth associated with reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And those benefits include better health, uh, improved economic opportunity for everybody. And so this report is designed to talk about not only addressing greenhouse gas emissions, but what are some of those additional benefits? And uh, let me just mention one other thing, and that is that um, combined with things that have been going on in the states amongst private sector actors who are making commitments to address climate change, um, federal action in the form of executive branch regulations and so forth, the two new laws that Uh, Congress enacted in the past couple of years, one being the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act uh, in 2021 and the Inflation Reduction Act in 2022. Those two acts really accelerated the, uh, the horsepower of federal action to address climate change. And so we talk about what the implications of these federal and non-federal activities are with regard to how close we can get Mm -hmm. to addressing net zero emissions in the U.S. economy by mid-century. And we get a long way now with these new federal laws, uh, but we don't get all the way. And so we address other things that are gaps uh, and opportunities for action. That's great. Yeah. If I could just chime in on that, um, one of the differences there uh, in the first and the second report is during the first report, we of course didn't see what Congress was going to pass. Although a number of recommendations were made, several of which were included Uh, in those bills. So we're quite pleased to see that. But I think the second uh, report picks it up from there and say, okay, well, with those and other bills that have been enacted, what's the status of the potential for reductions and what's needed to fill gaps, not only from the technology perspective, but also from uh, the perspective of uh, multiple other areas, such as workforce. And again, as we mentioned earlier, Uh, The second report particularly ties in the elements of equity and fairness and how do we do this transition transformation in ways that are fair and just. Mm -hmm. Sarah, can I just add one more thing to what Ed said about this um, aspect of ensuring a just and equitable transition? The, The committee felt extremely confident that in order to have a sustainable transition, to a net zero emissions economy. We needed to have something where people felt like there was something in this for them. And so we thought that a sustainable 
path to net zero emissions really involved addressing things that provide opportunity for people that haven't had opportunities in the past so that people saw that there was value in this transition for them. And without that kind of action, we didn't think that there could be durable change because uh, change is going to be hard in a number of instances, even though there are some aspects of this which are not that hard. Uh, so this social contract was really important to the report. And you'll see that, uh, particularly compared to the first report, there's a number of people that had joined the committee that were uh, real social scientists, uh, the folks that really understand how to make these transitions in ways that are fair and just. And having them on the committee was just a, a wonderful compliment. So, Yes, it was quite a robust, uh, not only committee, but the number of authors, reviewers, staff supporting the effort. I can only imagine there were a lot of great and very in-depth discussions and, and good dialogue around tough issues. Uh, the fact that you were all able to arrive at a consensus um, and, you know, put your put your stamp on it uh, really is quite impressive. And I, you know, certainly speaks volumes to the, uh, the nature of, of such a uh, consensus-based procedure. Um, I don't want to go too far into that that topic, but I am really curious if if either of you or both want to just sort of provide a little bit of um, l uh, light on on the process. You know what how, what does that look like to to co-author and 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 write with so many different people with so many different perspectives and ba uh, backgrounds. Yeah, do you want to start or should I? Oh, I'll let you start on that one. Then I'll I'll add some <laughs> complimentary comments. That sounds great. Uh, one of the great things about the way that the National Academy set up a committee is that they are really trying to reach out to people who come with expertise in their field and without conflicts of interest. Um, and so the members of the committee are predisposed to think that the their colleagues are drawing from the literature and drawing from the what is is known in a field. And so people get assigned to work on individual aspects of the report. They do some drafting. Everybody looks at what everybody else is saying. There are lively discussions amongst the people who are expert on a topic. Uh, and those of us who are not as well familiar with one or another aspect of a very broad topic like decarbonization of the U.S. economy. We know that the report not only is benefiting from our colleagues' own expertise and their uh, bringing forth relevant parts of the literature, we do reach out to other experts in the field. Uh, and on our website, we indicate many different sessions that we had that are public uh, to hear from other experts in the field. But also we know that the report is going to be peer-reviewed by people who come and are looking at it with their particular lenses on. So we're able to rely on each other and yet bring to bear tough questions when we're not sure about uh, whether something makes sense um, that that's unfamiliar to us. And it was a great process. It is a lot of kicking the tires um, in nice ways so that people are, you know, respectful of each other, but it's a great process. I'll just add to that, that the interaction amongst the people on the committee was one of the uh, really enriching parts of the um, experience. Uh, and I think it's difficult. Folks are um, addressing the same question 
typically, energy transitions uh, require many, many decades to occur. And what we're asking in this regard is that we compress severely uh, that transformation into a very short period of time across all the sectors everywhere uh, at the same time. And that challenge is, is paramount and one where we needed to hear from the experts as how to best uh, navigate the uncertain path there. Sarah, can I just add one more thing? And that is that something as complicated as uh, you know, getting to net zero in the U.S. economy is is complicated. You know, just so many different systems of interlocking, interlocking relationships between you know investment in legacy assets, uh, the way communities interact with facilities that are polluting. Uh, you name financial institutions. You name it, and. One of the things that was really cool about this report is we know that we can't do this just with a technology lens alone, or we can't do this just with financial carrots alone. People need to be engaged in the process. So the fact that there were people with different professional orientations and disciplinary training who were putting their lenses on how to solve problems, that collective set of lenses was really important because that's the way the world works. So that was a real benefit of this report, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. I would agree. Yeah. Um, and uh, you had kind of previewed or, or shared before the show, the makeup of the committee represented uh, members who were economists, public health experts, engineers, technology experts, environmental sociologists, uh, public policy experts, natural scientists, architects, industry. So like such a diverse group of individuals, which is exactly what you need to really fully represent and characterize all the moving parts of, of this transition. So really, really uh, admirable work. Um, let's dig into some of the policy recommendations as well as the kind of overarching objectives of these different uh, identified policies uh, in the report. And, um, you know, there's too many for us to touch on in the time we have, but maybe maybe pick your favorites really, or those that you think are kind of most integral to the scale and speed of getting to net zero by 2050. And Sue, I'll start with you. Well, because of your podcast, Electrify This, let me choose one of the uh, electrification areas that we talk about in our report. And of course, everything in our report in some sense is going to point back to the need to have a clean electricity system. Because our study, like so many others, views the electricity system as playing a quite central role in decarbonizing the economy. And that's because it's a bit easier and more cost-effective to clean up electrical supplies than it is to directly address pollution in every industry or manufacturing facility or so forth. Uh, but if you clean up electricity, and we have a chapter on the electricity system. And then you change end uses in buildings, for example, to use electricity instead of natural gas or propane or oil for heating and other appliances. Then you are directly addressing buildings energy use 
by electrifying them. And, and of course, your listeners understand that. So in our chapter on uh, buildings, uh, we, we call this the built environment chapter because it, it really looks at land use configurations and how to think about the design of cities so that they're, uh, they're attractive for electrification op- op- options uh, with putting in place electric vehicle charging systems in ways that people in different kind of homes and apartments in city and rural areas can find attractive. So that's part of the built environment uh, that affects electrification of vehicles. Uh, we also look at zoning practices and building codes and other things where not just the federal government and financial incentives to put in place heat pumps, but also local governments and state governments building codes and enforcement of them and modernization of them from an energy efficiency point of view are really essential for moving to electrification. So electrifications of buildings is a huge area of opportunity. People often don't just figure out buildings, electrical and uh fossil fuel energy use and think about those as a source of emissions and it's huge. Mm-hmm. So electrifying the the end uses of appliances and heating systems in buildings is really key. So let me stop there and um, I know Ed is going to give you a favorite one to talk about as well. Yes, that's a great one. Ed, please, please dive in. Um, yeah, just to build on uh, some of Sue's comments relative to electrification, I mean, it not only is the foundational uh, transition that's needed for the supply of, of energy, but also as it transitions to lower carbon sources, uh, it's important that those um, uses be applied across multiple sectors. As she had mentioned buildings. It's also important to electrify processes where it's feasible and economically viable uh, in industry and transportation and across other, other sectors. For that to occur, I'll point out a couple other things that are important. Uh, One is that in addition to increasing the supply of electricity in the distribution, which is covered in uh, both the bills we had mentioned earlier, the IRA and the IIJA, or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, uh, it's important also uh, to support the usage of that electricity. So in industry in particular, that means providing support for uh, delivery of the electricity at the site where it's gonna be used. So uh, along with that, uh, you need um, some increases in substations and bus bars and other things to convey the electricity, both inside and outside at the fence line of the facilities, as well as uh, support and lowering of hurdles for direct on-site generation and use of that electricity. And that's something that is a, is a transformation as well, as far as the local on-site usage that needs to be greatly amplified. So with that, I'll kick it back to Sue. She's got some other comments to build on. Yeah, I do have one other thing. I can't believe that in my answer about the built environment, I didn't mention energy efficiency because that is such a sweet spot in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. When, when we think about buildings, whether they are apartment buildings or single-family homes or small retail uh, commercial establishments, um, government buildings, and so forth. 
most of the buildings that we'll have mid-century have already been built. There will be new buildings built, both in um, areas where the economies are quite mature, but also in parts of the country that are still growing rapidly with, with population growth and so forth. And so it's one thing to add building codes for new buildings where efficiency in the design of buildings and the construction of buildings and the choice of appliances is built in from the get-go. And that and that's really important. But there's a huge amount of our building stock, which is older. Uh, I have lived in cold climates in, old, in parts of the country where they most of the buildings were built a hundred years ago uh, and they, they are, they are leaky and there are still huge opportunities for retrofits in buildings so that buildings, windows, buildings, lightings, buildings, air conditioning and heating systems are not only retrofitted with better appliances, but is as there's a shift from say natural gas or oil heating systems in parts of our country to heat pumps, those are much more efficient in terms of their total energy use. Uh, as you know, your your listenership does know that from listening to your podcast for a long time, but we certainly do talk about the role of energy efficiency across the economy because uh, if we don't pursue that one, we will have to build an electric system, which is gigantic. And so this is important not just for individual Households and firms own energy use, but for the size of the electric system that needs to be built going forward. Yeah, yeah I'll mention that uh, Sue earlier had noted that uh, the report looks at gaps uh, that are still evident in our path to get to net zero. Uh, and two of those paths that were identified were um, the end-use support for electrification uh, as well as uh, energy efficiency. So in that regard, as Sue just uh, implied, energy efficiency can help to reduce the load for um, the electrification, and it can help reduce the load uh, together with electrification for more expensive uh, solutions. And some of those more expensive solutions, you know, we're, we're going to have to uh, take on, but the lower uh, we make the actual load through energy efficiency and electrification, the better off we'll be relative to a cost position. Now, the report also looks at uh, one of the gaps uh, out there in the relative cost uh, of some of these solutions. So in some of the places in the US, the relative cost of electricity uh, is higher than the cost of natural gas. And that can be an impediment towards the adoption of electric technologies. And so that's something from a policy perspective uh, that still needs to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, and we've been doing some thinking and and early work on this very topic, particularly for uh, industries large and small alike. Uh, they benefit from both very subsidized and re and and very low rates of energy, both electric and gas. But typically, the gas rates tend to be lower than the electricity rates on average. So uh, the incentives to adopt new technologies also have to uh, encompass whatever might be needed on the back end to um, to deal with that that delta, at least in the interim, um, while those gas prices are 
currently lower. Um, not an easy task. It requires a lot of involvement in uh, lengthy utility rate cases and rate design proceedings and discussions with many re regulators and utilities. So did the report look at or speak to kind of that ground level strategy, policy, activity, or is that kind of, you know, someone should take this report and run with it in, in wherever they're working? Um, just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Um, I know the, the report does cover the interfaces between uh, the state level, uh, the federal, and the local level. And this is one of those areas where it points out that uh, integration is, is needed across the, the efforts to drive um, things toward a lower cost position. But I, I think folks will see that uh, additional uh, knowledge uh, needs to be generated in those areas and various policies need to be trialed uh, to see how well they're going to going to work. Sue, any additional comments there? Yeah. Um, the reports, both the early one and uh, the longer 2023 report, in the electricity um, chapter, which is chapter six, just, <laughs> you know, just saying. For quick reference. Uh, for those who want to just <laughs> dip right in. There are a number of recommendations with regard to the electric sector specifically. And one of them aims at uh, looking at the pricing of electricity and uh, encourages regulators and utilities to think about pricing in a way that um, really reflects how much it does cost to produce electricity at different times a day in order to be clearer about the, the, the ways in which a consumer could save money, for example, if they were putting on on-site generation like solar panels or something and then producing power for the grid when it is most valuable to others um, and then um, using management of their electrical uses on-site in order to capture the opportunities of lower cost electricity at different times a day. And so this is really important when we think about uh, transportation uses and charging of electric vehicles. You would, all else equal, from the grid's point of view and electricity pricing point of view, not, and hopefully to from the point of view of uh, drivers of electric vehicles, you want to be charging those vehicles at a time when there's surplus sunshine coming onto solar panels so that you can use that to charge electric vehicles' batteries. Uh, and that's often when people are not going to be on the road. And so um, thinking about a pricing mechanism from regulators that makes it attractive to take advantage of those differences in the, the cost of supply and the availability of supply, those things are part of our recommendation. And we do point to a study, different study of the National Academies uh, that was also published around the same time that we did our first report. And this is called The Future of Electric Power. And there's a whole chapter that focuses in that report on pricing and regulatory issues from the local distribution utility company level that is uh, addressing these kinds of questions. 
Great. Well, I will have to follow up with you after this and get the name of that report because that is one I need to read. <laughs> um, Sounds great. And yeah. it's not 650 pages. Even better. I love that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Well, there's, I mean, there's so much in this report, as I've said, and there are really solid recommendations across the board in all the categories. Um, I want to return to something you both flagged at the uh, beginning of the conversation, which is this report really emphasizes the imperative for an equitable transition, a just transition, rectifying longstanding uh, social inequities and environmental injustices that have pervaded much of U.S. economic history. Can you talk a little bit about, and obviously there's a lot in that topic as well, but talk a little bit about how um, that is reflected in the reports and maybe highlight any of the core recommendations in, in one of the topics. Um, and Ed, I'll start with you this time. Uh, I, I think the report really uh, dives deeply into what the opportunities are for policymakers uh, to pick up on uh, this theme of public trust and responsibility. Uh, this is a major transformation uh, and policymakers have not only the responsibility to help their constituents through the immediate times, but also to look longer term and to understand what the impacts of climate change are that we're already seeing and what they can be in the future and to make uh, the address to those as rapidly as possible while also making the transformation fair and just. And so I think it does, in the second report, reach out to policymakers as well as to those folks in the individual sectors um, to, to make this transformation uh, go and to pick up the pace. Sue, your comments. <laughs> yeah, let me add a couple things. One of them is that our, right up front in our report in Chapter 2, there is a extremely thoughtful <laughs> I wasn't the drafter of this one, extremely thoughtful uh, overview of environmental justice and energy burdens and, and what we know from the literature about the extent to which disadvantaged communities are affected by today's energy economy, uh, both in their pocketbooks, but also in public health issues, uh, the fact that they don't feel that communities who are in uh, who are neighbors of large industrial and or uh, energy facilities don't feel that they've had a voice in terms of the future of those, uh, the past of those uh, facilities, but also the future. So with regard to recommendations on environmental justice, we identify a number of things that, that are quite practical, some of which have been taken up recently in the federal government agencies. One of them is to really uh, define environmental justice metrics and then collect information about the impacts of various uh, use of federal dollars that are affecting the energy economy and, and how those uh, EJ communities are affected. You know, every agency has a different definition of what it means to be disadvantaged or environmental justice. And so, Getting a clearer picture of what's happening is very important, and there's there's metrics that we have uh, identified to do that. We look for the availability of technical assistance to communities so that they can be part of the conversation. Uh, 
typically they have day jobs and they can't take off time from those day jobs to show up at public meetings and their organizations don't have the means to help support participation in local decision making. So we encourage support for that kind of activity. We think that climate opportunity zones that have affected um, EJ communities ad, ad, adversely in the past provide special targets of opportunity for wealth creation as part of the transition. Um, additionally, in the public health chapter, we are very clear about the ways in which it uh, the impacts of today's energy economy inequitably impact different communities huge benefits associated with improved air quality in those communities. And so those are just two examples. And we identify the need for health impact studies as part of industrial decarbonization, including energy-related decarbonization activities. So there's, there's a lot of places in the report where we focus on impacts of these on these communities and how to remediate and try to improve the the outcomes for them. Yeah, I That's couldn't also agree with a you good more. connection there if I can uh, jump in yeah. relative to the workforce because particularly in those communities that have been disadvantaged in the past, uh, the question is how to encourage um, people in those areas to become part of the transition and to benefit from the transition itself. So the report um, hits that topic as well. Yeah, I wish we had a, another hour to dive into the workforce stuff because it always comes up on this podcast. Of course, you cannot do an electrified future without a well-trained, qualified workforce to cover all the changes that are going to occur in transportation and buildings and industry and the electricity grid. Uh, it really is soup to nuts. Uh, an exciting opportunity for people who are looking to get into this space is what I tell a lot of people who are like, how do I kind of dip my toe in this? It's like, just go to LinkedIn and look at the huge volume of jobs that are being posted daily from a wide array of organizations um, and, and companies and businesses, many of whom are moving quickly in this direction to fill their gaps. So, uh, But that training and education piece is critical as well as, yeah, ensuring that the opportunities are landing in places that are uh, underserved, historically disadvantaged, uh, low-income, um, rural uh, you know, tribal governments and their communities obviously have a great interest in being part of this transition as well. So um, what's exciting is there are so many opportunities on the horizon for people, but it's a little daunting because we have a lot of steps that have to kind of fall into place for that to become reality. So, uh, but we're moving, we're shaking, we're, we're making it happen. Um, totally agree. <laughs> Uh, and those of us who've been doing this a while can attest to the speed with which things are moving now. I mean, historic change in terms of the, you know, we're all moving generally in the same direction. And uh, that's a that's a big shift from, from even just a decade ago. So, um, well, I see our time is winding down and it always makes me a little sad because these conversations are so rich. Um, but I want to ask you both one final question. And that is more focused on, you know, the policymakers, of course, are key target audiences for this report, for your findings, for your recommendations. 
What advice would you give to a policymaker who is interested in playing a role in, on any of these topics uh, in supporting decarbonization, but is maybe concerned about the uncertainty and risk associated with such a wholesale transition? Um, you know, how, how can they feel confident as they move forward in their role as policymakers to make this happen? Um, Sue, I'll let you jump in. Thank you. Great question. It's, it's very clear to us, even, uh, and right now I'm just speaking in my own experience and not necessarily from the report's vantage point, but I will try to connect the two. Um, any in interactions that I have with our congressional committees makes it clear to me that increasingly Republicans and Democrats understand that their constituents are being hit with extreme weather events, that climate change is happening. It's happening to farmers. It's happening to people affected by wildfires, flooding, extreme cold, extreme heat. And so policymakers can't escape the fact that their constituents are feeling the effects. And the thing that I would say to policymakers, and now let me connect it to this report, is there are things that can be done. And the United States leadership in addressing the emissions that are leading to those extreme events and climate change more generally, the, those emissions can be addressed with a, a body of technologies and a body of processes that are known today and that uh, people can put their hands on and that there are so many benefits associated with moving in that direction. Uh, there are some sticky things that make it very hard to move from yesterday's legacies, uh, assets of, you know, buildings and so forth. Um, but there are solutions on the ground. And so, the things that make it easier for your your constituents to make the changes are where sh you should be focusing your attention, and it will be bringing those constituents benefits. Great, love that, Ed. What would you have to say? Just a couple of things to add to Sue's comments. Uh, I think policymakers can see that for their constituents, the risk of doing nothing is paramount. Uh, the impacts of climate change will increase. Uh, exponentially uh, if nothing is done. So I think one of the things that the report does is tries to lay out for policymakers what those options are that are realistic and that can be pursued um, not only today, but over the course of uh, the next decades uh, to make this transformation. Uh, and again, the report uh, covers the, the elements of policy and how policymakers can uh, not only provide incentives, but also lower hurdles, uh, and that they can look across the multiple uh, components of this transformation to provide things that are benefits to communities. Um, and that's where the workforce comes in, it's where jobs training comes in, and other things that policymakers can really help out with. So I think the report, particularly the second one, uh, serves as a guide for policymakers. And I'll also note that the members of the committee 
uh, have expressed interest in helping to unpack what's in the report, such as what Sue and I are doing today. And if there are interest, uh, the committee members and their specialty areas, I think in general are willing to, to help provide information and to interact and to help people uh, along the path. Well, that's great. I'm going to be putting both of your phone numbers in the show notes so the policymakers can call you directly and get the briefings they need. <laughs> um, no, and I agree with both with what you have both said, and uh, I would maybe just highlight one additional uh, theme that I noticed in the report and all of the subtopics is that this really goes down to the local level. You know, you don't have to wait for your congressperson or your senator to act or in, introduce a bill at the federal level. There have been so many things already that have happened at that level. So great, those are moving forward. But what are you able to do at the local level? And really, there's so many things that touch climate, that touch emissions reductions, that touch air pollution and equity at that local level. So there's a really exciting space for local leaders, city council people, mayors, um, municipal governments, uh, and the like to to take action and and really drive forward the solutions that work for their communities. So um, that's encouraging to me as well. Thank you for underscoring that. That is definitely a thread through the report, and it's it's very powerful. Yep. It speaks to what a lot of people want in this day and age, which is what can I do where I live? You know, what can I do that affects the people that I know in my immediate community beyond just the, the world at large? So that's it's good. Well, uh, this has been a superb conversation. I really value and appreciate both of you as individuals, as colleagues, as experts in this field, and really grateful all for all the work that you are doing and have done to continue to to move decarbonization. Uh, forward and reduce emissions and and really just inform so much of this dialogue happening at all levels of government. So, uh, Ed, thank you for joining me today. Uh, you're very welcome, Sarah. Thanks to, to you and the uh, the organization there for highlighting the opportunities in uh, what is to be electrify this. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And Sue, thank you again so much. It's great to reconnect with you after so many years. Likewise, and thanks to Energy Innovation for hosting your podcast, which is really great. Oh, well, thank you. We love it. It's fun. Uh, and it really is, it's a treat that I get to talk to such great people all over the, the world. So, um, well, with that, I will uh, ra- round us out here and... Um, Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan energy policy firm delivering high-quality research and analysis to help policymakers pursue a decarbonized energy future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and the podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. And you can send us an email at electrifythis at energyinnovation.org. And we're inviting you to take our brief survey. Give us your input. Uh, The link in the show notes and or the website is where you can find the survey. Please continue to subscribe, follow, and give us a review if you like what you're hearing. And thanks, as always, to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner. We're here live at the Audio Inn in Salt Lake City, Utah, sending you all best wishes and warmest regards for the year 2024. Keep tuning in and it's sure to be an action-packed year so you won't want to miss an episode. Thanks for listening. I'm your host Sarah Baldwin. You're plugged in to Electrify This. <laughs>